Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to the New Books Network. I am your host on the New Books in Israel Studies channel, Ari Barbalat. I am honored to be in dialogue with Frederick Hoff. He is professor and diplomat in residence at Bard College in New York. We are here today to discuss his new book, Reaching for the Heights, the inside story of a secret attempt to reach a Syrian-Israeli peace published in Washington, D.C. by United States Institute of Peace Press 2022. It's an honor to be with you today. Uh, Ari, the honor is entirely mine. I'm uh, delighted to be with you. To begin, kindly tell us about yourself. Where did you grow up? What formative events in your life catalyzed the diplomats and person you would become as an adult? Uh, well, Ari, I was uh, I was born in uh, in in Brooklyn, New York, one of the five boroughs of the uh, of the city of New York, uh, raised on uh, raised on Long Island, uh, just to the east of the city, in a in a town called Port Washington. Uh, growing up, I was a, a reasonably good student in school. I was interested in uh, things happening uh, overseas. Although I must say my my real passion was uh, was baseball, mm. but in any in any event, I guess the most the most formative event happened when I was a a, a junior in high school, and on a whim, I decided to uh, apply uh, to be an exchange student. There was a an organization that still exists, but back in the day, it was really really big uh, in American uh, public schools something called the American Field Service, AFS. I applied to be an AFS uh, exchange student. The rules of the game were you could not designate where you wanted to go. This choice would be made for you. And in the fullness of time, I received a letter from the uh, AFS headquarters in New York telling me that uh, I had been matched with a family in uh, Damascus, Syria and that I would be spending the uh, summer in between my junior and senior year of high school uh, with that family uh, in Damascus. And I must say that is that is the experience that uh, that literally changed the uh, the direction of my life. What inspired you to write this book? What message do you hope to convey to readers? Um. Ari, uh, I, I am a I am a historian of sorts. I think that uh, I have read everything that is out there about American attempts to facilitate peace between Israel and Syria. Uh, much of uh, my undertaking uh, was of necessity secret. Very little of it. Uh, had ever been uh, disclosed to the news media, very, very little. So my main motivation 
uh, in writing this book was to uh, was to try to fill a historical gap uh, and to uh, and to write as accurately as I as I could the account of what may what may prove uh, to be the final American attempt to uh, facilitate uh, is Israel Syria peace. What are the primary themes in your book? What story, quote unquote, does your book tell? The uh, you know the story Ari revolves uh, revolves primarily on uh, on on my efforts uh, for better or worse uh, to build with the leaders of uh, Syria and Israel uh, a sense of trust and confidence in me. Uh, a sense that I could be an honest broker uh, in uh, in bringing them to a decision which uh, politically would have been very, very, very difficult and uh, perhaps even perilous uh, for one or both. And 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 that is that is the story. The uh, the advances I made, the mistakes I made, um, the. Uh, the, the diplomacy, the diplomatic best practices that I tried uh, to bring to bear consistently, uh, sometimes succeeded, sometimes uh, sometimes did not, and it's a it's a story uh, of an effort that was in uh, was in very good shape, very in in a very good position, uh, perhaps to bring about ultimate success uh, when when in the end it it all came crashing. Down because of uh, decision, decisions made by the president of Syria. What misconceptions about President Obama's relationship with Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu does your book challenge? Ari, during the time during the time my mediation was taking place, that relationship, the relationship between Prime Minister Netanyahu and President Obama, did not appear, from my point of view, uh, to be to be in a state of crisis. Um, I mean, it it was it was clear that um, my immediate superior in the uh, in the State Department, Special Envoy uh, George Mitchell, was having was having difficulty uh, with his area of focus, which was on the uh, the Israel-Palestinian uh, side of the uh, side of the peace process. Uh, there were serious differences between the United States and Israel over questions like uh, settlement freeze and so forth. But uh, but I must say, during the time uh, my mediation was active from uh, April 09, until uh, March 2011, the uh, the really negative um, character of the uh, of the relationship between these two key individuals, Netanyahu and Obama, was not yet uh, not yet obvious, at least not to me. I thought that that this is interesting because the media at the time was reporting it in a in in great length about frictions between Netanyahu and Obama, which were present, according to the press, um, in the first term and continuing this into the second. In your perspective, where does your book story fit vis-a-vis -vis the story told 
in the mainstream media regarding Obama and Netanyahu? In light of your book, should we see Obama's relationship with Netanyahu as being much more fruitful and cooperative privately than the media was leading popular opinion to believe? Were media reports of tensions between Netanyahu and Obama overstated or exaggerated? Um, Ari, I, uh, <clears throat> you know, I was, I was, I was aware of the, yeah, but at the, but at the same time. Uh, there were areas, uh, there were areas of agreement. Uh, I can recall, for example, a meeting uh, between uh, President Obama and Prime Minister Netanyahu, uh, in which the uh, in which the subject of, uh, you know, future security arrangements uh, between uh, Palestinians and Israelis was addressed. And uh, President Obama was very, very, very forthcoming in terms of appointing a, uh, a, a general officer uh, from, the, uh, from the American Joint Chiefs of Staff to oversee this process. And uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu was very grateful for that. And, uh, and in fact, it led to some very, uh, very constructive uh, discussions. My, you know, my, my recollection is that, uh, is that 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 relationship uh, really, really went into a deep freeze uh, later on. Although I, I do not, I do not doubt that there were uh, problems uh, from the beginning. What does your book teach us about President Obama's foreign policy toward the Middle East? I think in in terms of um, in terms of my my experiences uh, trying to mediate peace. Uh, and then, and then later, uh, serving as an advisor to Secretary uh, of State Clinton uh, on Syria, uh, Pre- President Obama had a had a a couple of areas of uh, of sharp focus. Uh, first of all, in terms of the uh, Arab-Israeli peace process, uh, his emphasis was almost entirely, almost entirely. On the uh, on the Israel Syria, uh, sorry, on the Israel Israeli Palestinian aspect of the uh, of the Arab Israeli peace process, he saw this as the uh, as the essence of the problem, uh, something I did not disagree with, and uh, and he saw uh, Special Envoy George Mitchell's efforts in this area. Uh, to be uh, to be all important um, in the in the end when uh, when 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 my mediation had uh, had hit a, a particularly positive uh, point uh, what I discovered and what I related in the book was that the uh, the White House seemed to be a bit surprised uh that uh that the israel syria track was moving forward as rapidly uh as it was uh but in the end when the shooting started in syria when the president of syria elected to use violence against peaceful demonstrations uh president obama proved um, unwilling uh to uh to intervene in the sense of uh in the sense of being in touch with the uh, with the president of Syria, so I think I think what what I learned from this experience and what comes across 
in the book was that uh, was that President Obama was uh, was extremely uh, selective, extremely cautious in terms of uh, in terms of risk taking uh that uh, you know that might have uh, you know might have imperiled some of his uh, domestic political priorities what role did you personally play in the events described in this book my my personal my personal role uh was one of the uh being the uh, principal mediator uh between uh, between israel and syria when I when I joined the State Department at the request of uh, the new special envoy for Middle East peace, George Mitchell, uh, Mitchell's Mitchell's expectation was that I would be serving as one of his deputies working on the Israeli Palestinian track. Uh, Mitchell and I had worked together about eight years previously on the uh, Sharm el-Sheikh fact-finding committee, uh, where I served as uh, chief of staff residing in Jerusalem for the better part of three months. Uh, and I was, the, uh, I was the principal author of the report issued by that fact-finding committee, which had looked into the, uh, to the reasons for the second Palestinian intifada, and had made certain recommendations as to what the uh, what Israelis and Palestinians should do to end the violence and get back to uh, get back to negotiation. So Mitchell had every every reason to believe uh, that I would be assisting him on that particular track. When I was sworn into the State Department, however, we had a uh, we had a meeting. In which I expressed the preference to uh, to take the lead on the uh, Israel Syria track, uh, which had been assigned uh, to no one at that point. Uh, Mitchell was uh, Mitchell was surprised, but uh, in his usual uh, graciously professional manner, uh, acceded uh, to my request. So for the next two years. Uh, Next two years, uh, my task was to try to build a foundation uh, for uh, Israel-Syria peace. What is your book's contribution to our under to our understanding of the nature and character of international negotiations? What generalizable lessons about negotiations and in international politics does your book convey? I, I I think Ari that the uh, that that the that the book uh, reinforces uh, some some lessons learned uh, that are that are that are that characterize uh, the uh, the successful uh, application of uh, diplomatic principles in 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 many cases. Um, in this particular case, in dealing in dealing with these two parties over over specific issues, particularly issues that were that were territorial in nature, um, I had a I had a particular advantage uh, in terms of having done a lot of prior study about the so-called line of June fourth, nineteen sixty seven the uh, the area that uh, that separated uh, Syrian and uh, Israeli forces in the Jordan Valley just before the outbreak of war in 1967. Now, why was this important? Syria 
was interested in only one form of peace negotiation with Israel. And that would be a negotiation over the terms and conditions for the return of all land Syria had lost uh, in uh, June 1967, going down uh, to that line of uh, line of June 4th. So the first principle uh, that, that's involved here, and it's something that I uh, that, that I uh, share with my with my students uh, using many case examples is that uh, in order for in order for mediation to be successful or at least have a chance of success, uh, the mediator absolutely must do her or his homework. The subject matter must be mastered completely. In previous American attempts uh, to mediate Syria-Israel peace, uh, focusing uh, basically on the Clinton administration, American efforts in the 1990s and in the year 2000, um, one gets the one gets the impression that the Americans never quite fully mastered the homework aspect of all this, knowing in detail what it was that uh, that separated the uh, the parties. Uh, this was uh, this was an advantage uh, advantage I had because I had done the homework uh, well in advance. So doing the homework is uh you know is number one uh i think that a, i think that a mediator um has has to develop a sense of uh, full understanding and and even even a touch of uh empathy looking at the positions of uh of uh, of both sides i think this is essential in trying to build relationships of trust and confidence uh with the parties because without that kind of a relationship, uh, the ability the ability of a of a mediator to move the ball down the field is uh, is really limited. What does your book reveal about the foreign policy conducted by Secretary of State Hillary Clinton? What can we learn about the role she personally played? What can we learn about her approach to foreign affairs? I, you know, I always had the impression that uh, that Secretary Secretary of State uh, Clinton was uh, was very, very, very sensitive uh, to the uh, to the relationship uh, she had and tried to uh, maintain with the President of the United States. Uh, that was that was that was number one. Uh, Secretary Clinton, I. I think was was very sensitive uh, to the fact uh, that the battle for the uh, Democratic Party uh, presidential nomination in 2008 uh, had been had been one that was was very hard fought. There was a there was a degree of uh, bitterness, and uh, I I always had the impression, particularly after my mediation effort. Uh, when the uh, when internal warfare in Syria was really beginning to pick up, uh, that Secretary Clinton was uh, was vitally vitally interested 
in uh, in preserving a good uh, a good personal and a good working relationship uh, with the president of the United States. Now that said, uh, Secretary Clinton uh, was uh, was one of the few people in the administration, uh, certainly one of the few senior officials uh, who was uh, vitally interested in my effort uh, to broker. Uh, peace, peace between uh, between Israel and Syria, uh, with the exception of uh, Dennis Ross in the White House and uh, Hillary Clinton in the uh, Department of State, there was uh, there was a high degree of skepticism elsewhere in the administration. Even even the person for whom I worked, uh, George Mitchell, uh, you know, believed that there was no possibility at all that Prime Minister Netanyahu would seriously consider uh, parting uh, with any territory, uh, uh, you know, in the Golan Heights or elsewhere, no matter uh, what the Syrians were willing to do uh, in, in, in return. So at key moments in this mediation, uh, you know, my ability to turn to uh, Secretary Clinton for uh, for assistance was uh, was was very, very, very important. And uh, she never, ever, ever fell fell short in that regard. What were the similarities and differences between Netanyahu's negotiations with, with Bashar al-Assad and former Prime Minister Ehud Barak's negotiations with Hafez al-Assad? Can you compare and contrast the two? Uh, well, I'll do my I'll do my best. All right. First, uh, you know, it bear it bears saying that um, the parties you mentioned never uh, engaged directly in negotiations. This was always uh, this was always a matter of American mediation, uh, both during the uh, Clinton administration and during the. Uh, during the Obama administration, um, during during the Clinton administration, uh, you know, particularly particularly in the case of uh, of Prime Minister Ehud Barak, the the failure of the American side, the failure of of the uh, American mediation team to understand in detail uh, the issue of the line of June 4th, 1967 was, I think, crucial to the ultimate failure um, of, that, uh, of that track. Um, Prime Minister Ehud Barak uh, had some very, very specific and, and I must say creative ideas about uh, where that where that line, the line that separated uh, Israeli and Syrian forces just before the June 67 war, where that line actually existed. And uh, Barack's creativity uh, did not uh, correspond to reality on the ground. And the American side was never in a position uh, to, uh, to correct him on this. Uh, the ultimate result was a was a catastrophic uh, summit meeting uh, between President Clinton and Syrian President Hafez al-Assad uh, in Geneva 
in March uh, 2000, in which Clinton was induced uh, to present to Assad a map uh, reflecting where the eventual uh, Israel-Syria boundary would be, a boundary supposedly coinciding with the line of June 4th, 1967, in accordance with, uh, with Assad's uh, bottom line requirement. And, and that map had uh, no relationship at all to reality. Uh, and as it happens, uh, President Clinton was not specifically aware that he was presenting to Assad a map that had been configured by, uh, by Prime Minister Barack. Um, the, 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 in, terms of, in terms of Benjamin Netanyahu, and and my experience, what uh, what interested Netanyahu about the possibility of peace with Syria, and uh, I you know I would I would hasten to add that uh, Netanyahu was not uh, to say the least an enthusiast uh, for giving up uh, territory, uh, but there was something there was something he wanted uh, and something that he ultimately came to believe might be possible. And that was Syria's fundamental strategic reorientation. Uh, a Syria that would um, give up uh, relationships with entities such as uh, Iran, uh, Hezbollah, Hamas, uh, relationships that uh, presented security threats to the state of Israel uh, in return uh, for the phased withdrawal of all territories seized in, uh, in 1967. Uh, Netanyahu started out as a, uh, as a strong skeptic that any of this was possible. Uh, but over time, uh, came to believe that uh, that there might indeed uh, be a possibility of a of a grand bargain uh, that could uh, that might uh, require Israel uh, to give up uh, significant territories, but in the end uh, leave the uh, leave the Jewish state in a uh, much stronger uh, and safer uh, geopolitical position in the region. What role did Dennis Ross play in the negotiations between Israel and Syria? What will history remember about the role he played in the first Obama administration? How did his role in Obama's Middle East policy differ from his role in Bill Clinton's administration's Middle East policy? Can you comment on his role as a diplomat in these negotiations? Uh, sure. Um, you know, I think in, in both administrations, the uh, uh, Clinton administration and the Obama administration, uh, Dennis Ross played, uh, played central roles in, uh, in attempts to facilitate uh, Israel-Syria peace. And I think, uh, you know, I think Dennis, uh, Dennis learned, some, uh, learned some lessons uh, from the uh, from the Clinton administration, um, in terms of uh, in terms of the necessity of the uh, the United States in a mediating role, um, absolutely mastering uh, the subject matter. Uh, 
during the Obama administration, uh, <clears throat> Dennis, Dennis and I uh, were, were already collaborating closely on uh, one aspect of the uh, of the Israel-Palestinian uh, track. Special Envoy Mitchell, uh, knowing that I had had a military background, asked me uh, to uh, take some time away from my Syria-Israel mediation uh, to focus on uh, secure potential security arrangements uh, between Israel and a future Palestinian state. Dennis and I co-chaired uh, a U.S. interagency working group focusing on this. Uh, we had opportunities to talk about um, about the uh, the Israel Syria track. Uh, Dennis was uh, vitally vitally interested because of his uh, because of his background, and he was eventually presented uh, an opportunity uh, that sprung from a uh, a meeting that the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, Senator John Kerry of Massachusetts, had had with Bashar al-Assad. Uh, in Damascus in, uh, I guess it was uh, May 2010, in which, uh, in which Assad uh, specifically expressed, uh, expressed his willingness uh, to remove all security threats to the state of Israel, springing, arising from Syria, Syrian relationships, uh, in return uh, for, the, uh, for the ultimate uh, uh, withdrawal of Israeli forces uh, from territory taken in June 1967. Uh, Dennis, Dennis saw this meeting and a, a document it produced um, as an opportunity uh, to attract the interest of Prime Minister Netanyahu himself personally in the possibility of, uh, of a Syria-Israel agreement. And uh, Dennis came to me and said, uh, Fred, you know, my, my recommendation is that we meet with, uh, with Prime Minister Netanyahu, uh, discuss with him the, uh, the document that uh, Senator Kerry brought back uh, from Damascus and, uh, and see if we can uh, see if this, this might be a way to move forward. I, I you know, I welcomed this my my own access to uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu had been regulated uh, very carefully by uh, by Special Envoy Mitchell, uh, who did not you know for understandable reasons did not want my efforts to preempt his own uh, efforts with regard to uh, Israelis and uh, Palestinians. But Ross's Ross's intervention uh, was crucial. Uh, in terms of moving this mediation into a new and much more productive phase. What role did Ehud Barak play in the events narrated in this book? What lessons did he apply as Minister of Defense that he may have learned from his tenure as Prime Minister? My my first of all, I must I must say that uh, Ehud Barak is, uh, is definitely one of the one of the most uh, intelligent, uh, creative, and articulate individuals uh, I have I have ever met uh, in my life. I I think Ehud Barak was serving as Minister of Defense under Bibi Netanyahu 
uh, during my my mediation. Uh, he was very uh, he was very open uh, to meeting with me. He and uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu had a uh, you know, a, a close it seemed to me a close relationship of uh, of trust and confidence because as this as this mediation began to uh, gather steam and prime minister netanyahu uh uh put his uh you know put his own uh leadership and prestige on the line uh the uh netanyahu formed a a very 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 small uh team of israelis uh to uh israeli officials to assist him uh, in this mediation, Barack was part of that team. My strong, my strong impression was that uh, was that Ehud Barak had absorbed the lessons of the uh, you know the failures connected with the uh, Shepherdstown uh, peace conference, Shepherdstown, West Virginia, in early two thousand, and then the uh, then the catastrophic Geneva summit of March. 2000. Um, Ehud Barak, uh, you know, realized that some uh, some fundamental mistakes had been made at that point, and uh, he was uh, he was, uh, I think, satisfied uh, with the possibility of uh, the 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 line of June 4th. 1967 being replicated as the eventual peace boundary uh, between uh, between Israel and Syria. Uh, Barack was uh, was was also quite convinced and uh, told uh, Dennis Ross and me on several occasions uh, that Prime Minister Netanyahu was was seriously seriously committed to this. And uh, and would have moved forward uh, to a peace treaty uh, once he was satisfied that uh, that Damascus was perfectly serious about uh, strategic reorientation. So Barack Barack was a real uh, was a real asset uh, in terms of uh, my mediation. How did Israel and the United States maintain secrecy during the negotiations? I, I I think secrecy was maintained because both sides were quite serious about this. The Israeli side in particular, Prime Minister Netanyahu in particular, uh, was uh, very, very, very concerned about the possibility of leaks to the press. Uh, you know, the idea that the prime minister of Israel, uh, you know, might be interested in principle in uh, in returning the Golan Heights and certain acreage in the Jordan Valley to Syria uh, was something that uh, that that the prime minister uh, equated with uh, political peril. Uh, he obviously wanted the full package uh, to be in place. Uh, before uh, you know, before there would be any uh, any public uh, public announcements, uh, there were there were some there were some press inquiries 
during the latter part of my uh, my mediation, uh, but uh, but nothing nothing serious. The size of the of the Israeli uh, mediation team uh, helped contribute uh, to the security. Uh, there were even uh, th- th- there were no more than six or eight people uh, involved, and uh, there were key officials such as the uh, sh- such as the foreign minister at the time, Lieberman, uh, uh, who were never brought into the uh, brought into the uh, inner circle. Um, so uh, this is, and again, this is this is one of the reasons uh, I elected uh, ultimately to write this book. Uh, because even after the passage of a, of a decade, very, very, very little information about this mediation uh, effort had, uh, had leaked out. How did the intra-group dynamics play out between individual members of the Israeli and American negotiating teams communicating with Syria? How did the different team members interact with one another? What were points of concord and discord, and how did these impacts the mediation effort my you know my sense uh my sense of uh, of the israeli of the israeli team uh was that um there were there were no there were no i was not aware of any of any specific policy differences uh per se within the uh, within the israeli team uh Prime Minister Netanyahu uh, placed his own uh, personal attorney Yitzhak Moho uh, in charge of the uh, of the effort. Uh, you know, a rather rather extraordinary move. Moho was not a uh, was not a government official, uh, but he was already uh, playing a uh, playing a large role uh, in uh, negotiations with uh, uh, George Mitchell over the over the israeli palestinian track uh as i mentioned netanyahu put together a a a very small team uh responsive to moho moho responsive to him and uh that team uh that team appeared to uh to work uh quite well together and uh there were uh you know there were there were no there were no differences in uh, policy approach that I could I could detect uh, everybody was was very interested obviously in whether or not President Assad himself was uh, was specifically committed uh, to the idea of uh, serious fundamental strategic reorientation away from Iran away from Hezbollah, Away from Hamas in return for uh, for these very very significant territorial uh, concessions, and uh, uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu, I think, was able to uh, was able to maintain unity within his team. And frankly, I don't think it was uh, I don't think it ever uh, it presented a a real problem to him. I'm not aware of anybody on his team, uh, for example pushing back and saying, uh, you know, we shouldn't be doing this. We shouldn't be moving in this direction. Uh, you know, members of the team, Moho, Netanyahu himself, were concerned about the uh, the potential politi- domestic political implications 
of coming to such an agreement uh, with uh, with Syria. And uh, Netanyahu himself told me at one point, he said, Fred, not only, not only am I going to have to get the approval of the Knesset, but I'm going to put this to a national referendum. Okay, so, uh, you know, he, he knew that there would be a tough uh, political fight uh, to get this through. But uh, to the best of my recollection, uh, you know, he maintained uh, he maintained discipline uh, within his team and uh, and faced uh, no particular dissent uh, that I'm aware of. How might Israeli Syrian negotiations have played out differently if a different Israeli prime minister were in power other than Prime Minister Netanyahu? In your perspective, how might Prime Minister Lapid, Prime Minister Bennett, or Prime Minister Olmert have handled the situation similarly or differently to Netanyahu? How important was the character, personality of and psychology of Netanyahu as an individual to the unfolding process? I, you know, my, my sense is of uh, of. All of the uh, the prime ministers whose names you mentioned, uh, perhaps Benjamin Netanyahu uh, was in the best position uh, to bring home uh, Syria Israel peace. Um, his own his own skepticism about the about the venture. Uh, I thought was uh, was very instructive and uh, and and very 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 interesting, uh, and certainly nobody nobody in Israel uh, would have characterized Benjamin Netanyahu as an enthusiast uh, for territorial concessions in uh, in return uh, for anything. Uh, but I, you know, looking at it, looking at it in retrospect, and keeping in mind that Benjamin Netanyahu was the prime minister during my mediation, this was the person uh, uh, I was actually required to uh, to deal with. But looking at it in, in retrospect, it seems to me that if uh, if events had followed a different course in Syria, if uh, Bashar al-Assad had used politics and diplomacy instead of brute force. In dealing with uh, with unarmed protesters, if this mediation had continued, if if Dennis Ross and I had succeeded in in, in ultimately bringing uh, Israeli and Palestinian uh, Israeli and Syrian negotiators together face to face, and if we had gotten to the point uh, where there was agreement on a uh, on a treaty text. Of all the names you mentioned, Ari, I think Bibi Netanyahu probably would have been uniquely able to make the case to the uh, to the people of Israel uh, that this was worth doing. That at the end of the day, Israel would be safer, more secure, with a, a, a Syria treaty than without um i you know i don't i don't know but i doubt that any of the other names uh, you mentioned 
uh, would have uh, would have been able to uh, approach or replicate uh, Bibi Netanyahu's ability to sell such a treaty. Now, Ehud Olmert um, uh, seemed to have been making uh, some progress under Turkish uh, mediation uh, when that effort collapsed, uh, uh, coincident with uh, uh, Hamas and uh, and Israel, uh, you know, going going to war. Uh, but again, I think I think given given his uh, political background, his his reputation. Uh, Bibi Netanyahu might have been the uh, might have been the person best positioned uh, to sell an agreement uh, internally in Israel had one been reached. Speaking of Turkey, what role did Turkey play in the events that you describe in your book? Um, Turkey's Turkey's role was uh, was 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 mainly mainly one in uh, in helping me helping me understand uh where uh, the, the point the the point at which israeli and uh and syrian uh officials uh, had had reached uh in uh in what 20 uh, 2008 i guess when uh, when turkey was uh, was mediating uh between uh between israel and uh and syria uh, Feridun Sinoliolu, senior uh, senior uh, Turkish uh, foreign uh, foreign ministry official, uh, was very generous uh, in the time he gave me when I began my mediation mission, uh, explaining uh, where these uh, where these talks were headed, and uh, the extent to which they uh, they moved in the right direction uh, when they uh, when they collapsed. Um, and and indeed, at the beginning of my mediation, when uh, power had changed hands in uh, in Israel, and Bibi Netanyahu replaced Ehud Olmert as the uh, as the prime minister, um, one of the uh, one of the things I uh, I mentioned to my Israeli uh, counterparts, national security advisor, and others, uh, was that if there was uh, if there was any desire. To uh, to resume a, uh, a mediation uh, involving Turkey, uh, I would be happy to uh, facilitate that. And uh, there was there was not much interest in that. And uh, and frankly speaking, at the beginning, there was not much interest in uh, American mediation of uh, of uh, Israel Syria differences. How was the legacy of President? Bill Clinton's Middle East policy felt in President Obama's approach to the Middle East in general and Israeli-Syrian negotiations and relations in particular. Um, I think the uh, I think the intervening eight years of uh, you know of, of of George W. Bush had uh, had uh, er- erased. Um, a lot of uh, a lot of recollection of what had been undertaken during the uh, during the Clinton administration, except, of course, uh, you know, in the minds of a, of a few officials who um, who uh, emerged in the uh, in the Obama administration after having served uh, during the Clinton administration, uh, you know, Dennis Dennis Ross 
comes uh, comes uh, immediately uh, to mind. Uh, there were others, though, who were uh, who were involved in uh, in early attempts to uh, to bring uh, Syrians and uh, Israelis together. And uh, some uh, some officials in the Obama administration uh, had the view uh, that there was uh, there was nothing to be gained uh, in trying to uh, in trying to mediate uh, between uh, between Israel and uh, and Syria. Uh, I would say, though, for the most part, at least in terms of in terms of my experience, the um, the recollections and the. Lessons learned of uh, uh, Dennis Ross in particular uh, were particularly instructive and uh, particularly helpful uh, to me. Speaking of George W. Bush, how did the ramifications and consequences of President Bush's Middle East policy impact President Obama's attitude towards Syria-Israel talks and impact President Obama's approach to the Middle East in general? Well, I, you know, I think the, uh, you know, the primary, the primary contribution of the uh, George W. Bush administration uh, came uh, toward the very end of that administration with the uh, with the 2007 Annapolis conference, uh, which was uh, like like many Arab Israeli peace efforts. It uh, it's centered primarily on Palestinians and Israelis. Uh, but it was, uh, you know, comprehensive in scope, and uh, and this is what uh, this is what led to the uh, the Turkish attempt uh, to mediate peace between Syria and Israel. Um, I think what uh, you know what 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 President Obama inherited, and indeed what uh, what he had on his own was the sense that uh, Arab-Israeli peace was important in terms of American national security interests. And, uh, you know, he was uh, one of the few presidents uh, since the uh, since the 1960s to uh, to express a, uh, a strong interest in Arab-Israeli peace. Uh, but, uh, but I thought at the time, and I think it's been uh, it's been confirmed in President uh, in President Obama's memoirs uh, that his uh, his idea of Arab-Israeli peace centered very much, uh, almost exclusively, on the uh, on the Palestinian-Israeli track of that uh, of that peace process. Uh, the president, from the beginning, wanted to uh, engage the uh, the regime in Damascus diplomatically uh, to an extent that the Bush administration uh, had manifested no interest in uh, at all. And I think uh, I think President Obama saw discussions, uh, you know, related to the possibility of Israel-Syria peace as as more or less facilitating uh, his desire to uh, engage Syria diplomatically. Uh, I never had the sense that uh, President Obama and members of his inner circle, with the exception of, uh, of Dennis Ross, 
believe that uh, believe that uh, Syria Israel peace was uh, was really really something that could be accomplished. What does your book reveal about Israeli Foreign Minister Avigdor Lieberman and National Security Advisor Uzi Arad? <laughs> Uh, well, I, I suppose the only the only uh, revelation about uh, Avigdor Lieberman uh, is that he was uh, he was not part of uh, of my mediation process uh, when uh, when Prime Minister Netanyahu put together a uh, a small team uh, to interact with me. Uh, the foreign minister was not part of that team you know perhaps the uh you know perhaps the prime minister was reflecting back to uh his very first term in office in the uh, in the 1990s uh when there was a uh when there was a sort of informal track two attempt uh led by uh former ambassador ronald lauder uh american to mediate uh, Syria-Israel peace, and uh, uh, Netanyahu, I guess, was not was not sufficiently careful in those days uh, with whom he sir with whom he shared information uh, <laughs> within the Israeli government, and at a at a key at a key moment, uh, certain maps were leaked to the press uh, by uh, by an Israeli official. And uh, that uh, that that entire effort blew up. Uh, I think that uh, the Netanyahu was absolutely determined, uh, to the best of his ability, to maintain total secrecy. Uh, once he committed himself uh, to the possibility of uh, of peace with Syria, and uh, I, I can only I'm I'm not an expert about Israeli internal politics, but. Uh, but I gather his uh, his relationship uh, with his foreign minister uh, was not one of uh, of total uh, trust and confidence. Um, the uh, the national security advisor uh, was a uh, was a person uh, I met with uh, repeatedly early in my mediation uh, before before the mediation really picked up speed uh, by involving Netanyahu uh, personally. Uh, Uzi Arad, a very, very tough, very articulate guy, uh, uh, you know, told me, told me repeatedly, uh, I, was, uh, I was wasting my time uh, in trying to, uh, trying to arrange some kind of a comprehensive peace settlement between Syria and Israel. Uh, his point of view was that, uh, was that Syria was, uh, was not interested in, uh, in peace with Israel and that Israel and particularly, uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu was not interested in yielding territory, uh, under, uh, under any, any circumstances. Um, Uzi and I had some uh, very lively, uh, lively discussions. I, uh, I developed a strong sense of respect for him, and and ironically, ultimately, uh, toward the end of the process, uh, Uzi became part of the uh, of the team that uh, that uh, the prime minister put together to work 
with me. And uh, in the end, uh, Uzi Arad was, uh, was an enthusiastic supporter uh, of my efforts. How did Lebanon view Israeli-Syrian talks? How did President Michel Suleiman respond? What role did Hezbollah and Hasrallah play in the events, and Hassan Nasrallah play in the events that you narrate? What role did the Sheba Farms play in the mm. events that you narrate? Um, Ari, uh, when my mediation uh, hit a critical point uh, in the fall of, uh, of 2010, when both Israel and Syria agreed uh, to American mediation on the basis of a draft peace treaty uh, drafted by me, one that I would very, very quietly shuttle back and forth between uh, between Jerusalem and Damascus. Um, at that point, there were there were no other regional players uh, that I was able to uh, to take into my confidence about uh, about what was going on. So the uh, so the president of Lebanon, uh, Michel Sleiman, uh, the prime minister of Lebanon at the time, had had no knowledge, no specific knowledge, of what I was doing uh, in terms of uh, in terms of shuttling uh, between uh, between uh, Israel and uh, and Syria, where the where the subject of Lebanon specifically arose was in a one-on-one uh, -on -one meeting I had with uh, President Bashar al-Assad in Damascus on the last day of February, 2011. The purpose of this meeting uh, was to satisfy myself and my government that Assad was personally committed uh, to the idea of Syria's strategic reorientation. In return, of course, for the phased return of all territory lost to Israel in June 1967. Uh, I had a 50-minute one-on-one conversation with Assad uh, in which I shared with him a document we had prepared in Washington, one that uh, spelled out in considerable detail uh, what it was uh, uh, Syria would have to do, you know, in terms of uh, breaking uh, armed security relations with uh, with uh, parties such as Iran, Hezbollah, and uh, and Hamas. At one point, at one point in this conversation, Assad raised one objection, something he saw in the document I shared with him. And it was a mention, having uh, the mention of Lebanon. It was Lebanon was mentioned in the context of uh, of an issue uh, that you raised, uh, the uh, the so-called Sheba Farms. This is a a thin, elevated strip of the Golan Heights, which, in the year two thousand after Israel withdrew from Lebanon. Hezbollah claimed that this area, the Sheba Farms, was not really 
part of the Golan Heights. It was really Lebanese territory that was still occupied by Israel. And uh, this claim uh, would enable Hezbollah to, uh, to maintain that uh, it was still entitled uh, to be armed as a resistance organization, uh, that Israeli occupation had not really ended in Lebanon. And in, in 2000, the, uh, the foreign minister of Syria, Farouk uh, Shara, called uh, the uh, secretary general of the United Nations at the time, Kofi Annan, to tell him that, yes, yes, Syria recognized that this uh, strip of uh, what had been considered the Golan Heights, which had been occupied by Israel since 1967, was really, really Lebanese, uh, Lebanese territory. Well, in the document, uh, the security document I shared with Assad, we raised the issue of uh, Lebanon and said that there would have to be specific security arrangements involving Lebanon because uh, because of Syria's session of the uh, seeding of the uh, of the Sheba farms to Lebanon. And at this point, Assad intervened and he and he said, uh, he said, Mr. Hoff, I, I don't think uh, that any other that any other third party such as Lebanon really needs to be named here. And I said, well, Mr. President, we you know, we have to deal with this with this issue. Israel is uh, Israel considers the Sheba farms to be part of the area it's occupying. Uh, it actually considers it to be part of Israel. How do we deal with this? And uh, he said, Mr. Hoff, let me assure you this area the Sheba Farms is Syrian. It is not Lebanese. And uh, Ari, I, you know, I, I must say that at the at the time I was I was shocked by this statement. Wow, uh, coming coming from the uh, coming from the president of Syria because in in very few words he completely undermined. Hezbollah's claim to be a uh, a resistance organization fighting Israeli occupation of uh, Lebanese territory completely undermined it, and and I was I was shocked. The other thing, frankly, that shocked me in this conversation was. Uh, I raised uh, toward the end of the conversation. I raised uh, the uh, the subject of uh, Iranian and Hezbollah reactions if there would actually be peace between Israel and Syria, uh, which by definition would require Syria to break so-called security relationships with these uh, with these entities, and. Uh, Assad uh, did not blink an eye. He said, you know, uh, they'll go along with this. The Iranians understand uh, that this is a matter of uh, Syrian interest. The Iranians understand that, uh, you know, for me to have truly peaceful relations with Israel, I cannot pose any sort of security threat to Israel. 
either by Syria autonomously or because of Syrian relationships with other countries. The Iranians get it. He said as far as Hezbollah is concerned, uh, the Hezbollah leader, Hassan Nasrallah, he told me is not Persian, he's Arab. Hezbollah will evolve into a a political party in Lebanon in the context of peace with Israel. And Assad said, I have already told President Michel Sleiman of Lebanon, prepare your negotiating team, because once we reach peace with Israel, you're next. Okay? And I, you know, I must say, Ari, I, I, I left the meeting wondering if the president of Syria really believed what he was telling me. I mean, I must, I must say, uh, you know, his, his responses uh, were pleasing in the sense that he, that he indicated he fully understood what would be required of Syria to enter into a peace agreement with Israel that would get Syrian territory returned. Uh, but I, but I, but I wondered if he, if he really and truly believed uh, that the Iranians would basically just, just roll over and and say, well, okay, our uh, our strategic objectives in the Levant have now been decisively wrecked, but this is okay because Bashar al-Assad wants peace uh, with Israel. And I, you know, on the one hand, I, I, I thought, well, you, you know, this will be, uh, this could be Assad's problem to face uh, ultimately, but it would be everybody's, everybody's problem uh, if his assessment were to prove, were to prove wrong. So when I, when I left this meeting, um, this was the, uh, this was the only reservation I had, uh, but, uh, but I think it was a fairly significant reservation. How might your book's insights regarding Middle Eastern diplomacy and U.S.-Israeli-Syrian negotiations shed light on the recently concluded Israel-Lebanon maritime border agreement? In light of your book's revelations, what role can we suspect that Syria may or may not have played in this agreement between Prime Minister Lapid and President Aoun? In what ways can the Israel-Lebanon agreement recently concluded be understood in a new light? You know, I you know I think the uh, I think the recent uh, you know the recent Israel-Lebanon maritime agreement uh, involved a uh, you know successful application of American mediation. Uh, this was an effort uh, that was actually begun by me. In the uh, in the Obama uh, administration, and uh, my successor was uh, ultimately uh, able to uh, facilitate an agreement. Uh, I think the uh, I think the role of Syria in uh, in facilitating this agreement was uh, was precisely uh, zero. Uh, the Assad regime, I think, had uh, absolutely nothing to do with. Uh, 
with the way the mediation proceeded or the way the uh, the, the way the two parties behaved. Uh, the role of uh, the role of Hezbollah turns out to have been um, rather important, I think, in in all of this, because uh, you know, lurking in the background uh, was the possibility of uh, of armed conflict in the Mediterranean. I think the uh, I think the government the government of Israel was uh, vitally interested in neutralizing this threat uh, diplomatically so that uh, so that Israel could uh, could go uh, full speed in its efforts to uh, develop natural gas fields uh, that could uh, that could be increasingly used to uh, to meet uh, demand in uh, demand in Europe. So I think this was a uh, this was a strong Israeli uh, you know motivation. Um, Hezbollah uh, you know wanted wanted this agreement uh, because it did not want to be blamed uh, by the uh, by the people of uh, people of Lebanon uh, for ruining something that uh, you know that ultimately could produce. Uh, Billions of dollars in uh, revenues for a uh, for a Lebanese government that uh, that's in desperate need of uh, of revenue. So I think it was uh, I think it was an example of very patient, very persistent American mediation over the years. Uh, the circumstances uh, came together in a way that both countries uh, were ready for an agreement. I think it is significant that uh, that Lebanon uh, has recognized that it has a boundary uh, with its neighbor to the south, albeit a maritime boundary, but this is a boundary, not a not a blue line, not not some other kind of uh, line. So so there is a possibility, in my view, assuming that that both sides uh, act in a manner faithful, to the terms mediated by the United States, there is a possibility to extend uh, this mediation to uh, to land boundaries between uh, between Lebanon and and Israel. Because as we know, since uh, since two thousand, since twenty two years ago, when uh, when the United Nations. Uh, uh, constructed the uh, the blue line confirming a uh, full Israeli withdrawal from Lebanon. Uh, there have been more or less uh, constant clashes along along this line. So I think the maritime the maritime agreement uh, gives the United States uh, an opportunity uh, to bring its mediation ashore and uh, and try to uh, try to solve some of the uh, outstanding disputes on land uh, that still exist between uh, between Israel and Lebanon and move step by step by step by step uh, to a point where Lebanon itself uh, ideally with the, with the support of uh, the United Arab Emirates and other Arab countries uh, can move into the uh, into the fold of the uh, Abraham Accords.
What does your book teach us about the origins of the Arab Spring? How did Israel and the United States view Syrian President Bashar al-Assad's crackdown on protests in the country? What does your book reveal about Israel's policy toward the early Arab Spring? What does your book reveal about the U.S. response to the early Arab Spring? In, uh, in, in the course of my mediation, particularly during what turned out uh, to be the, uh, the latter phase, I think that, uh, you know, both we and the Israelis uh, were surprised uh, by not, not so much by the, by the outbreak of, uh, of demonstrations in Syria. Uh, there were there were mixed opinions about the ability of the Assad regime to avoid uh, the kinds of uprisings uh, that had taken place in Tunisia, Egypt, and uh, and elsewhere. What uh, what surprised us a bit, Ari, uh, was the reaction of Syrian security forces uh, when unarmed demonstrators in, uh, in Dara, the southern, southern Syrian city, uh, came out uh, in the middle of March uh, 2011 uh, to uh, protest uh, some egregious uh, uh, acts of uh, police brutality against uh, young Syrian teenagers who had gone out one evening and uh, had spray-painted uh, Arab Spring slogans uh, on the walls of uh, government buildings in the city. Uh, the, uh, these kids were rounded up, uh, they were beaten, their parents were denied access to them. Uh, people came out into the streets to protest and uh, government forces uh, opened fire. You know, now naturally, uh, you know, we were all we were all concerned uh, not only about the loss of life, but about the possible implications for a peace mediation uh, that seemed to be taking off in the right direction. Uh, Dennis Ross and I were already making plans to bring Israeli and Syrian delegations together physically in the same city. Uh, in Eastern Europe, we were thinking about uh, Prague or uh, or Budapest. Uh, in my in my own interactions with uh, with Bashar al-Assad, I had seen uh, I had seen no indications of a uh, of a person uh, inclined uh, in the direction of uh, of mass murder and gratuitous violence. I mean, we all knew Syria is a police state. Uh, plenty of people uh, being uh, being detained in state prisons for a long period of time, uh, but Assad uh, had, uh, had given every indication uh, of being a a person uh, willing to consider uh, the use of politics and diplomacy as opposed to uh, as opposed to brute force. I you know I must say that at the beginning. Uh, I kept waiting to uh, pick up the morning newspaper and read that uh, Bashar al-Assad and his very popular uh, first lady would be traveling to Dara uh, to meet 
with the families of the teenagers to meet with the leaders of the protest uh, to, uh, you know, in a, in, a very, in a very firm but conciliatory way, restore order, provide some compensation, warn people that uh, that there should be uh, there should be peace and quiet, but nevertheless, try to s- settle all of this uh, peacefully. Uh, the fact that he did not do this uh, has proven uh, eleven years later to be fatal for Syria. Uh, it's an absolutely uh, ruined uh, country. Uh, ruined uh, to a greater extent of all the Arab Spring countries, with the possible possible exception of uh, of Yemen, uh, but uh, but ruined uh, nonetheless. Uh, at the time, I uh, I tried very hard through Dennis Ross uh, to interest President Obama right at the beginning of these uh, of these incidents in Syria to reach out. Uh, to President Assad, uh, and to and to explain to the president of Syria, you realize, of course, Mr. President, that if the violence continues, a very promising peace mediation uh, that could get you the return of all the territory you've lost, this mediation will go away. President Obama was not interested in making that call. He was not interested in, for example, sending me back to Syria to have a one-on-one with Assad and deliver the same, uh, the same message. Um, so the United States uh, took an essentially uh, passive uh, reaction uh, to what was happening in, uh, in Syria. And of course, what was happening in Dera, uh, due, to the, uh, due, the, due to the presence of uh, cell phones and social media, the news was being uh, spread all over Syria. There were uh, sympathy demonstrations everywhere. The government's reaction, one of uh, over-the-top violence, was the same everywhere. And uh, you know, within a matter of weeks, uh, Syria was being uh, completely consumed uh, in violence. And this uh, once promising uh, mediation was. Uh, instantly uh, uh, consigned to history. As we bring our dialogue to a close, what are you up to now that this book is behind you? What current project are you engaged in? Is there anything you can share with us about your current work now that this book is over? <laughs> yeah, Ari, my, uh, my current work focuses on my duties uh, as, a, uh, as a professor at uh, Bard College. I'm, uh, I'm currently teaching a course called uh, The U.S. and the Modern Middle East. And uh, the main project uh, ahead of me is getting, uh, getting 15 Bard students across the, uh, across the finish line at the, uh, at the end of the, uh, at the, end of the uh, winter semester. And um, in the spring, I'll be teaching a course on uh, power, diplomacy, and warfare in, uh, in global affairs, uh, something I'm uh, very much looking forward to. Um, aside from an occasional article here and there, uh, you know, I'm not, uh, I'm not pursuing any, uh, any major 
research uh, research projects. Um, this uh, this book absorbed a, a great deal of uh, of energy over a couple of years, and uh, it's uh, it's been a it's been a tremendous pleasure to uh, to discuss it uh, with you. It has been my privilege and my honor. Thank you. My pleasure. Take care, Ari. Thank you. To our listeners, I'm Ari Barblet on the New Books in Israel Studies podcast. Today I've been in dialogue with Frederick Hoff. He is professor and diplomat in residence at Bard College in New York. We have been discussing his new book, Reaching for the Heights, the inside story of a secret attempt to reach a Syrian-Israeli peace, published in Washington by the United States Institute of Peace Press, 2022. Thank you.